0: pause your word counts, and enjoy.
1: We are so happy to have a very special guest today. We've got Andrea Bartz. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me.
0: Oh my gosh, Andrea, we're so excited. (laughs) We loved you guys. We loved this book. We love this book. We love all her books. Oh, Oh,
1: my gosh. Thank you. (laughs) I've been a fan for years. The Herd was incredible. It reminded me so much of places that I had been. It's beautiful and scary, and we can't wait to talk about setting and so many other things. Yeah. Why don't we start with how you got the idea for this book and the story behind it, how you found your agent, everything like that? Yeah, absolutely. So
2: We Were Never Here, coming out August 3rd, 2021, is my third book. And when I was trying to come up with an idea for it, I was squarely in the Houdan space and was trying to think up a new thriller. And I was actually on vacation myself in Chile with uh, a good friend of mine who now lives in Australia. And the oh two my gosh. <laughs> yes. And the two of us went on vacation to Chile's Elqui Valley, which is this sort of remote region in the Andes Mountains. And we had not realized that because it was a shoulder season, everything was going to be fairly shut down and just very quiet. And so on our first day there, we bumped into and befriended the one other visitor who was uh, a very sweet Australian guy named Stephen. And the three of us all immediately got along really well. We were very comfortable together and hung out the entire time that we were mutually in this sort of sleepy mountain town. And Stephen was one of those guys who was just so not creepy and kind and fun and just trustworthy and you just feel really comfortable around him. And so from the start, we had a running joke about how he secretly was just biding his time until he could kill us and take our money (laughs) and run off with it. So not scary that we could all keep joking about that. And it was our running gag. And on our last night in town, we had picked up some wine from a local shop and we're drinking it in uh, my friend's and my hotel suite and hanging out and talking and someone made a joke again about Stephen actually being this crazy psycho that had earned our trust and out of nowhere I just turned and said Stephen like you've known us exactly as long as we've known you and you didn't even see me pour the wine for you in the kitchen so what makes you so sure that we should be afraid of you and not vice versa There was like a long silence and finally he was like, I don't know. And I had the the idea spirals out of that of like, why is it that we just always assume that women are the ones who need to watch out because they're going to be the victims of violence and men are going to be the ones that they should fear. And I just thought, what would the scenario be that was the reverse of that? That was women on vacation who actually did the killing. And so that was what led to this idea of a story that sort of begins with these two otherwise normal women on their annual reunion trip who kill a backpacker in self-defense in their case and decide their best course of action is not to call the authorities, but to ditch the body and get the hell out of Dodge. And so the entire story spirals out of that one hook.
0: And uh, I had
2: been working with my agent for years at that point, as well as the editor. So we came to my editor that I'd worked with on my first few books with the idea uh, and she loved it as well. So I you know, just took off developing the story from that initial spark of inspiration.
1: Please tell me you pitched this as, so we met this guy and we joked about murdering him. And also here's my book idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think I did tell pretty much the whole backstory to get to that point, because the way that I pitched all my books, including ones that my editors rejected is I have to start by telling them like what inspired me. and I think that helps them understand like what, sort of theme is making me excited or like where the energy is coming from behind it. And I think I also mentioned they knew that I have worked as a travel writer for years. So before the pandemic I was traveling internationally very regularly, often by myself. And I just constantly was hearing a torrent, you're so brave from other people or mm-hmm. advice, or I would never go there or I would never let my daughter go there by herself. And just oh, gosh. this constant sort of idea of, and messaging that like women should not be out there traveling the world alone because they're asking for trouble or they're asking to get attacked or to become the victims of violence. And so I just wanted to turn that idea on its head and see what sort of fun I could have with playing with that theme of women as always the victims and just violence being a given that we just heap on women without ever expecting them to dish it back.
0: Gosh, so I'm so curious, and this is ridiculous. Has Stephen read this book?
2: Stephen has not read this book. <laughs> we
0: are still in touch. I'll be sure to
2: encourage him to get a copy when it comes out or send him a copy myself.
0: I didn't know that was going on in there. <laughs> yes, exactly. I oh mean, they're my both gosh. probably a
2: little afraid
1: of me from reading. Yeah. Everyone
2: who is friends with me after reading my book is willing to be adjacent to my dark, oh twisted my mind. So,
1: is he still alive? Stephen? Uh, Stephen? The- oh, of course he is. Nobody.
0: Stephen's nobody- fine. <laughs> She's starting she's starting rumors. So, what (laughs) advice do you have for women who want to write about scary things? I
2: think for the fear to feel authentic women, really anyone but women in particular should sort of not be afraid to capitalize on the real to pay attention to and explore the real fear that they experience. I think that all of my books are written from a very female perspective where the stuff that they are most afraid of, the stuff that my characters are really afraid of, is stuff that we tend to think of as stereotypically female concerns. And therefore, sometimes I think they're dismissed out of hand, whether that's fear of being attacked, fear of being a stranger on a dark street, or whether it's the female shame and fear of not being enough, a fear of being too much, fear of rejection, fear of not being the kind of idea of a perfect woman that we have. And this is all stuff that we're familiar with, but I think it can be uncomfortable to see it confronted on a page, let alone to write it yourself, to be channeling these really deep fears and and things that are not socially acceptable to talk about and put them onto a page. But I think that's where you hit readers emotionally in the gut and really write something that resonates. So I think women should just be paying attention to what scares them and should Have the bravery to think I'm probably not the only one who has this fear. And I'll see what happens if I channel it into a character and then spin it into something that has a real emotional resonance with with thoughts that your deepest, most shameful thoughts.
1: I love that because sometimes I think that what makes a work feel big and universal is the emotional specificity. And you do such a good job of that and I think it's probably because you start with something that is so real that we're so familiar with and then take that fear that so many people have and put it in a situation that hopefully none of us will ever experience. I think that's really cool. Just out of curiosity, totally fine if you don't want to answer this, but do you think people ask you weirder questions because you're a woman who writes scary books? I mean, I've
2: never been a, a man who has written scary books, but it is wild how much people assume uh, that things I've written about are based on my own life, are somehow autobiographical. And I just always think, wow, does anyone ask Stephen King if he like, beats his wife or if he's haunted by ghosts in the middle of the night or burying bodies on, on full moons? Uh, <laughs> but I do think women who explore these sort of fallacious things like domestic abuse or feeling shame about being like the one single person in your thirties within a group. I think people feel more entitled to ask the author to what extent is that real, which is asking quite a personal question if you think about it in a way that they really don't with men. Yeah.
1: yeah.
0: So we're so curious. This book is crafted so beautifully. Did you write this forwards and backwards? How did you make sure it all made sense in retrospect? It's a great question
2: in every book. I spend so much time staring at the ceiling at night, thinking, oh my God, I'm never gonna be able to make this all come together. I am
0: a panther. I was gonna platter. say, I was like, oh my gosh, she's a panther. No way. You would never <laughs> guess that you were. Oh pantser, my god, That pleases me so much. Something about this just pleases me so much. <laughs> all the
1: panthers in the I... audience
0: are rejoicing.
1: I wish I weren't.
2: Honestly, my life would be so much easier if I could just write a stupid outline and stick with it, but I can't. The only way that I can come up with something is by writing. So with every one of my books, I have this hook. I have a rough idea of the first act. I'm never quite sure what's going to happen in 2A in the fun and game section, but I have a general idea, usually of the midpoint twist or the midpoint, whatever, like large thing is going to happen halfway through. Uh, And that's how I pitch it. So when I'm pitching it to my editor to get approval, I'll take them by the hand as far as that midpoint and then, or just that pivotal moment in the middle. And then I fade out with trail off with, um, You know, they must, they must dig deep to solve, to figure out, face down their demons before they, before their world collapses, like to fade out with them, like, and then they'll go from there.
0: It's so interesting that I, but I was like, when I was reading it, there was such a freshness to some of the discoveries and it totally makes sense that you, that you like woke up and you're like, I got it. I could feel that in your writing.
2: Yeah, it is exciting in a way, because I'm discovering things at the same time that the character is, and then in turn, the same time that the writer is. And so a lot of the sort of twists and reveals that came out in the second half are things I never saw coming, which is really thrilling when I'm climbing up that hill with my writing, and getting close to something, and I'm not sure what it is. And then I can see down the, the tippy top of the roller coaster, or see around that that bend oh. in the in the road and I suddenly realize what it is and that's really thrilling. So it's great when it happens, but it's such a leap of faith throughout because that first half of the manuscript is just me like cracking open, loaded bear traps, pulling pins out of grenades and strewing them about it. It just feels like I'm throwing out all this stuff that might come in useful later. And then the second half is when I need to like, land all the planes, actually make hay of all these things that I set in motion. And it's really hard, but thank God it has somehow continued to to work. Now I'm writing my fourth book and I'm just beginning (laughs) to figure out the end and going, oh, thank God I I gave myself enough fodder. And so I do pretty much write in order. And then there's a big pruning step where I have to go back. And I usually don't have to add too much to seed things. My subconscious has been seeding the things that pay off later, which is a great feeling, but I do have to get rid of some stuff that never rose to the level of even a red herring that just became extraneous. And that gets cleared out as I tighten up this this draft zero, as I call it, that I've used in lieu of an outline to figure out the story.
1: I'd love to hear more about the best friendship at the heart of the book. So the birthday treasure hunt was amazing. And I, I love the thought that went into that and the way they can almost read each other's minds. How did you go about writing Kristen and writing this friendship? Figuring
2: out the friendship for these two was one of the trickiest things about this book. Uh, It was one of the last things to come together and it was just such a tough nut to crack. You read the book description and you learn Emily comes into this hotel suite and finds blood on the floor and her friend holding a wine bottle and saying I had to kill him in self-defense and you very quickly learn that a very similar thing happened a year before. And so you read that and automatically you're like what the heck is up with this friend Kristen? Like you the reader immediately become suspicious and yet I needed to been a tale where the friendship was complex and realistic and intense and loving enough that it would be believable that, you know, that moment in the hotel suite is not when Emily is, forget it, Kristen, our friendship is over, but instead they become even more bonded by this traumatic event. I knew I needed them to be really close. I knew I needed to figure out a backstory that sort of explained this closeness and this love for each other. And I knew that I needed them to feel like them versus the world so that it would feel believable and realistic that them covering up a homicide, you know, getting rid of the dead body, and in fact, doing it twice would just make them closer in a sense that it would make them even more in their own cell jar in their own dome together. And so really, it was just, Doing a lot of work after I had the the crummy first draft, doing a lot of work on their motivation, their values, where their values come into conflict, where their values align. What is Kristen getting from Emily? What is Emily getting from Kristen? I had a lot of fun with the fact that they initially bonded over both being like brain teaser nerds and having their own codes and then that was fun to actually show in the front story with this birthday treasure hunt that's all clues and one hint leading into the next yeah it was just a long slow process of tracking how they felt about each other at different points and what would really leave these two women feeling indebted to and in a friendship platonic way in love with each other so that a traumatic horrible event or two would leave them Closer and not necessarily immediately be friendship ending. So it was a slow, just character development process. I wish I had it figured out from the time I started, but it only became clear through various rounds of revisions and really getting it right in every single scene and every single exchange and making sure that every line worked hard to clarify how they're feeling about each other and how they're feeling about this.
0: You know, it's so interesting to me and, and Jessica and I both picked up on this that you have so much plot and action, but at the sense level, you're just amazing. So the idea that you use these small details and we picked up on like the mismatched teacups during a fateful brunch. You do such a good job of
1: showing that reality can be slippery and memories can be conjured and perceptions changed. Did you go in with a technique for this?
2: I never, specific technique, but I did some research on like trauma bonds and memory of really traumatic events. And just more generally how our memories are very sort of changeable and fungible, I thought was an interesting theme that I've explored in other books as well. In The Lost Night in particular was very much playing with the idea of if we can't be positive about our own memories and our memories are what we use to shape our identity, then who are we without them? Who are we with that sense in that sense of confidence in our own recollections and our own view of self and I just think there's something very frightening and interesting therefore in that idea of even just recounting with a friend some shared event years ago if you remember it differently it's creepy right it's kind yeah. of like no I feel really confident that x happened and they're like no way Jose like y happened? yeah um, it's very unsettling and disorienting and incredibly common we know that our memories really are just construction. And it became something to play with. You're left wondering, is Emily, our narrator, suppressing her own memories? Did she rewrite history? Is she being gaslit? And it really gave me a lot of fun with just two main characters to have this sort of constant game of, can I trust you? Can I trust myself? Can I trust both of us together? Do we really have each other's best interests at heart? When you're not totally sure that you can trust yourself, let alone your best friend, who can you trust? How can you feel safe? And so I didn't have a specific technique, but I just knew that that's something that I find really frightening and disorienting and unmooring. And that would make it a fun element to play with for this.
1: Supposedly each time we revisit a memory, we change it a little bit.
2: Mm. Yeah, we're accessing the last time that we remembered
0: it, not actually the event itself. That is wild. (laughs) Can we talk about your tension, which is so fascinating. I'm particularly interested in how you have some scenes that feels like it's just like, diving into something that's really simple and it ends up being important afterwards so how do you distribute the just tense enough it's definitely
2: yeah it's definitely a tricky undertaking and this is another thing that took me a really long time to get right in my bad first draft my my entire act So everything after that midpoint, which without spoilers, maybe you guys remember it, but it's when she sees a particular newspaper article. Um, (laughs) Everything after that was moving the plot forward, but there wasn't a sense of panic beneath it. And for a thriller, like the tension needs to be ratcheting up throughout, throughout, so that you're like on this whitewater rafting trip and just getting closer and closer, moving faster and it's getting more dangerous and you're moving closer and closer to that waterfall this very much like point of no return feel and I had it all wrong in the first draft and it was something I had to work really hard to get right there was a number of exchanges and just lines of dialogue that I had in that second half but I ended up moving back to the first half when stakes were a little bit lower and there was more of a sense of unease everything is still obviously wrong when there's a dead body in the first two chapters like things are going to feel wrong, but there was conversations that were much more uh, appropriate for a creeping sense of disease and things being off and suspicion. And then the underlying tone for exchanges and moments in it, as you get closer and closer to the finale has to be just ratcheting it up to 11. And so it was a lot of, of trimming and cutting and getting rid of lines that didn't work hard and a lot of figuring out her sort of internal state and being able to find different ways to talk about how fast her heart is beating. She's asthmatic. And so I have like appropriate times bringing in the sense of the feeling of not being able to breathe, which I'm asthmatic myself. I'm um, asthmatic
0: too, Andrea. And every time she had her inhaler, I felt a sense of relief.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty indescribable to people who don't have it that Mm -hmm. like you literally can't breathe and then you stuck in this piece of plastic and then, and then you can you breathe feel yourself being able to breathe and you're just Yikes. counting down from 10 waiting to be able to breathe yeah it was just a sense of like looking at every single scene that was there and asking like how can this raise the stakes and move the plot forward and make it so that the story would not work if I removed this scene like it has to be crucial and then also a little bit playing with some humor and there's a, a fun break when we talk about the word play and there's the Obviously, the entire sequence with the the treasure hunt, the uh, scavenger hunt. And so hopefully there's stuff that's like fun, scary, and just get a little jolt out of figuring that out alongside of Emily as we slide closer and closer to just like pure panic, terror, everything, sort of the walls that were once far away closing in on her are now pressing right up against her and just finding different ways to show that via little exchanges, comments, thoughts, internal sensations, and actions, yeah.
1: You have this wonderful passage that almost makes me think of the cool girl passage and that people are going to point to it and quote it a lot about how men often add fear to their lives on purpose to make things interesting, whereas women don't have to. So if women are living in thrillers, what genre are men living in? Such an interesting question.
2: I think the answer is that men are living in action stories and just seeing themselves as these heroes. And of course, these are huge generalities and there's tons of exceptions on both sides. So I don't want, I don't want anyone claiming I'm a anti-men or anything, but I think men from birth are taught to see themselves as the hero. They're taught that what they say is important, that what they feel is important, that they don't need to edit themselves and that they don't need to necessarily consider everyone else's feelings in every situation and often this is really benign often this is very much from like perfectly nice people whom I like a lot to give one very benign example my girlfriend until recently was living um, with her roommate slash landlord and one time just last week we were having dinner in the kitchen and chatting and he came down and he was on the phone he was on his bluetooth speaking very loudly which he always does on the phone And he got some food out of the fridge and he sat down and he waved and he sat down next to us and he just carried on with this conversation. And we just sort of couldn't talk until we quickly finished eating and threw our dishes in the sink and left. And he's one of the good ones. He's a really good guy. He was not trying to be cruel. He was not trying to be a jerk it never would have occurred to him that like he was disrupting our dinner that we were already having. And a woman, it would never go the other way. I'm sure there's exceptions again, but women are always taught to think about everyone else's needs and consider what everyone else might need. And men aren't. So for him, he's the hero in his story on the phone explaining something important because it happened to him and then he needs dinner. And so he goes and he pulls it out of the fridge and he sits in his home and he eats it. And there just isn't that perspective shift of jumping into other people's shoes. And so to me, it feels like this action movie, steady hero going about his business. I think a lot of men, especially men I've dated, seeing things from a perspective of like, the women that they date are, are characters in the movie of their life and maybe not entirely real people. And I think that's what makes it especially easy to be withholding or to ghost on them or whatever. And I just think women, have been taught to always be thinking about other people's needs, how they might be bothering other people, and also to be thinking about how they might become the, the victim of some kind of violence. It's like that advice on how to not get raped if you're going to a frat party. And like, it's just completely absurd that women are always supposed to be living in this thriller story and always supposed to be wondering about how they can avoid being assaulted or killed by men. And men are not living in horror stories, I don't think. I don't think they're living in scary movies. I think they're just living in movies where there's no question that they are the good guy and the hero and the one who's going to come out on top in the end.
1: So, Andy, why don't you tell us the story of how you got your agent yes, and editor sure. and what advice you have for other writers during the submission process?
2: Sure. So I wrote my first uh, manuscript, which eventually became The Lost Night, in my free time on my own because we did the whole thing went through tons of rounds of revisions with beta readers and crit partners and really got it in the best shape I possibly could. And then I just queried agents from the slush pile, people who were open to submissions and was very lucky to get a few offers of representation. And so I spoke with them all and spoke with some of their clients and then decided to sign with my wonderful agent, Alexander Machinist. And so I did another round of revisions with her. And then she went out to two editors that she thought would be a fit for it. And this is the part where every story has its sudden, unexpected low point. are soul, She went out and racked up so many rejections for it. And she was surprised and I was surprised. And two editors said, I cannot buy it as it is, but if she does a revision and fixes some of these issues, I'd be willing to look at it again. So what's mm. called the revise and resubmit request. which is horrible because you can do all the work you can pour your soul into a revision and then you can still not have it sell right so that was my dark point but i dug deep and worked really hard on a revision and felt like it was better and then luckily within a week we had an offer with my wonderful editor at valentine and she's the same editor i've worked with for all of my books so, oh, that's so yeah, nice. my, yeah yeah and she's wonderful i just was able to have drinks with my agent and editor yesterday for the first time since before the yeah. pandemic and i really adore them and feel so lucky to be working with them but my Big advice is really do your research on agents so that you're querying ones who are looking for... Ex- you can articulate exactly why they are the right agent for you, not just, and eh, we'll throw it at them and see, but don't waste their time because they get hundreds of queries a day. Make sure that your manuscript is as strong as you can possibly get it. I think sometimes people have this idea of, oh, the editing, that's what an editor's for. They're just looking for an idea, but they get so many submissions. You really need to stand up from the pack. And so it should be... Like if you feel like it could still be stronger, then you're not ready to query. And I think the actual query letter, people almost think of them as an afterthought because it's like, I worked so hard on this book, it should speak for itself. But like your query letter is your ticket in the door. And again, they're getting hundreds of these, so it needs to be perfect. It needs to be as strong as you could possibly get it. I had so many people read that query letter for me. I went through so many rounds on it. I think it's just really important to, to make your manuscript sound like something that an agent would be crazy not to at least read and take a look at. That's what they're going to be basing it on this 300 word email. Not even, they don't love that. They're not even going to read the few pages that you posted below. So just really slow down and take time on this process. I hear from a lot of people who are so excited to be done writing and excited to move on to the next stage. And they're so eager and anxious that they want to just quickly get past this. But you only get one shot with. Not just every agent, but pretty much every agency, if if they say no, they're rejecting you for our, their entire agency. So really put your best foot forward and do not query until you are entirely sure that of every agent on your list and of the query letter that you are sending out and the final product, final quote unquote, the, uh, the work in progress, the manuscript that you are querying them with.
0: That is amazing advice. And I think that's really in line with our belief here that it is about getting your best work out there and then having confidence that Mm -hmm. if you get to the point where you do get an agent, you have a support network and team to help you with it. So thank you so much, Andrea. This was lovely. Could we have Andrea read her first page? Yeah, that's so great to talk with you guys.
2: (laughs) Of course. Yes. We were
0: never here. Chapter
2: one. Kristen trotted to the patio's edge and crouched, long arm outstretched. Her fingers groped along a vine, lifting leaves, exposing the tender stalks beneath. I pictured her tipping over and tumbling off, there and then not there, the after image of her silhouette still hanging in my vision. I don't know why, for a wild moment, I pictured pushing her. Instead, I half stood from the table. Kristen, don't, I called. The wooden patio perched on stilts above the vines below and we were alone as we had been almost everywhere we'd stopped this week. Empty restaurants, empty markets, empty tourist information centers, an occasional cluster of other visitors standing or sitting nearby, despite everyone having all the space in the world. A snapping sound and Kristen stood, holding up a blob of green grapes. She popped one into her mouth and chewed thoughtfully. Not bad, catch. I missed the toss and the grapes bounced onto the glass tabletop. I glanced around, then tried one. It burst and tart on my tongue. He said their yield sucks this year. You didn't need to take an entire bunch. She sank into her chair and lifted her pisco sour, lime green and frothy. I'll leave him a few extra pesos on the way out. I was hungry. She nudged her glass against mine. You'd rather see me steal some grapes than get low blood sugar, right? Fair point. Hangry Kristen could cut to the core. A man with a bandana looped around his head was watching us from far out in the field just before the grapevines bumped up against a row of bushy trees. Beyond that, braided hills, with jagged horizon. Kristen waved at the worker and he nodded.
1: That's the whole first page. I guess we don't get into too much excitement yet, but... Oh, but we have so many wonderful hints. I feel like I could read this again and be like, oh, I see what happened there. And
0: I see what happened there. Right. So this is an example of a masterful first page where if you get to the end of the book, you want to go back to this first page because listening to it now, I was like, oh, that's
1: really smart. (laughs) Yeah, which is so great. I really enjoy books that you can do that with. Like reading this the second time, I'm sure I'd pick up on all kinds of things. Yeah, there was a lot of feeding and foreshadowing that I didn't even know I was writing. Mm -hmm. And then
2: later I was like, oh my gosh, how cool.
1: Can I ask when you figured out who the bad guy was?
2: I figured out who the bad guy was when I was writing the finale. I really oh, wasn't wow. sure. Um, wow, until cool. the end, which I think hopefully comes through in the reader not feeling certain either. And certainly Emily, the narrator, not knowing what was going on and trying to, to wrap her head around it. But I was really right there with her changing my theories and changing my hypotheses as I was writing. It's part of what made it so panicky for me to write. because I was like, <laughs> I don't even know how I'm going to finish this book. But finally, I settled on what I, I feel pretty confident about how it—how I landed it at the end. And um, yeah. hopefully readers find it satisfying as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. We would love to give away three copies of your book. Do you have a code word people could email us and the first three will get a copy? A code word? Can we go with Peace go, Sour? <laughs> That's so funny. That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> yes the best drink of (laughs) chile yes so the first three people who email academy at dot com with pisco sour will receive a copy of andrea's book andrea this was so great thank Thank you you so much for for talking with us we've been so excited about this for a long time and if anything you exceeded our expectations so really thank you Thank you both so much. It was such Thanks, amazing, wonderful questions. It was really a treat to talk with you both. Oh, thank you.
0: We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you.
1: If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our First Pages podcast, you can send it to academy.com at manuscriptwishlist.com with First Pages podcast in
0: the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.